And welcome to a special episode of the Woods Water Mizzou podcast. And when you're co-skeeting along with me as always, Case and Cole, how y'all doing? Good. Doing good. Howdy, y'all. Uh, Cole, I think you're doing a little bit better than good. Uh, you missed last week's episode because you were a little tired. said <laughs> there were maybe a couple of hills you had to climb or something. But let's hear it. Let's hear the Boys, story. Let's start I, beginning. I was whooped. I, <laughs> we, I think we had done a little research on the elevation of uh, Eagle's Nest, New Mexico, which is where we had our base camp. Um. I think we were either told by family or something online was off, but we were originally told that Eagle's Nest was around six or 7,000. Um, that was the town that we got to before we went up into the mountains to get into Eagle's Nest. Um, field elevation Eagle's Nest is like 8,500 feet, which here in uh, good old Boone County, Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, field elevations like just shy of 900. So we're talking, what, 7,900 foot difference, or no, 7,400 foot difference in elevation. Um, so, yeah, Dad and I uh, packed up on Monday after I got off work. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Sunday after I got off work. Headed west. Um, and, boys, I'm not joking. I am, I'm not even joking. Went through Kansas City, of course. As soon as we crossed over the state line, there was an immediate smell of shit. <laughs> you know why that is? All I'm assuming all the fertilizer plants or something. Uh, so it's funny you say that on a like a, a Kansas City like local forum thing. Someone, a bunch of sewers had backed up in Kansas that day. <laughs> <laughs> on Sunday. <laughs> Yep, I actually no, I saw I saw your uh, your you texted us that, and then I was scrolling through uh, Arkansas City on Reddit, and someone was like, "Why does it smell so bad in State Line?" And a bunch of sewers and KCK backed up. That's hilarious. Okay, well that makes <laughs> sense then. So we uh, we beat feet through the state of Kansas that night. Ended up uh, ended up crashing in Dodge City. Um, just got a few hours of sleep, got up, and uh, continued to head west. And before I left Missouri, um, I had, I assumed, you know, we were going Western big game hunting. Um, it's much farther than anything that we would typically harvest here in Missouri, uh, you know, depending on your farm, of course. But I had a little Bushnell 3x9 power scope um, that was probably good to 150, maybe 200 yards on a good day. And so I figured, you know what, I should probably upgrade my optics. I'm shooting a uh, Savage Axis 308 and had taken it, you know, got it mounted here at Bass Pro, um, had the gunsmith there mounted and took it to the range the Friday before we were supposed to leave. I'd also upgraded my ammo. I was shooting 180 grain um, Winchester XP ammo. And I guess that that specific rifle just does not like that round. Part of it also was that the scope wasn't completely sided in yet. I think I probably could have done a little more tweaking, but it just, it, it was all over the place. I'd be high right, and then I'd be low left, and then, you know, and I'm shooting on a lead sled too at a 100-yard range. So I'm starting to get a little bit stressed about that. Um, so fast forward to the trip out there. I had ended up going back and purchasing some ammo, 
that I had shot previously with that rifle, uh, the Remington 150 or Remington Corelock 150 grain. And that had done real well for me on the tech, uh, hunt we went on in Texas. So Dad and I get out to uh, just southwest of Raton, New Mexico, but before you hit Cimarron, New Mexico, just where there's absolutely nothing. And we start and we stopped at the uh, the NRA Whittington Center. Fun fact about the NRA Whittington Center: it is the largest by size, the largest outdoor um, shooting range in the continental United States. Take wow. a take a stab at how many acres this this property is 400 okay 400 acres skeeter what you got uh well i guess this is like me uh laughing at y'all on your deer <laughs> harvest numbers because i was thinking like 30 40 acres but <laughs> it went big this, yeah this range is thirty-three thousand acres Holy, Holy cow. cow. I didn't go big enough. 33,000 acres. We're stopping and checking in, paying our range fees and everything like that and getting an orientation property. And I'm thinking, why is this guy orienting me to the property? Like, it, it should just be like, hey, here's your sighting range. You know, here's maybe your your clay pigeon or skeet shooting range. And then here's your, you know, small ammunition handgun range. And I asked him, I said, how big is this place? He's like, oh, it's, he, he said it like it was nothing. He's like, oh, it's 33,000 acres. I said, how many? He said, 33,000. I said, 33,000. Are you kidding me? Like, how far back does this place go? So anyway, we get up to the range, get everything dialed in, and um, continue to head uh, southwest. You know, we were up, kind of basically crossed over right where uh, Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico all meet. So we went, you know, a little bit southwest to get up into the mountains. Get to camp in that night uh, at about 4 o'clock. And um, after we got in... Had a little bit of daylight left, and so we decided to go out and kind of glass from the truck, see what of the two properties we could hunt, um, see if they were holding any elk. Now, one thing that we found out on the way out there was that, excuse me, uh, that there were three mountain lions that had moved in um, on one of the properties that we can hunt. And one thing that we learned was that anytime there's a mountain lion in the area, those elk just get out of there. I mean, they will completely abandon the area. Um, they brought some mountain lion hunters in. They harvested two of the mountain lions because they were not only endangering some of the cattle in the area, but also the elk herd. But there was still one on the loose. Well, one of the properties didn't end up holding any elk essentially the entire time. We kind of learned that the hard way. Um, but the other one was a property that rested on Iron Mountain. Iron Mountain is... Uh, 56 feet shy of 10,000 feet to 10,000 foot peak, essentially. So Monday we did some class from the truck. Um, didn't see anything get settled into camp. And, you know, we decided we we're going to hit it early in the next morning. Um, my, I'm going to go ahead and call my uncle because he, he married my aunt um, from a, from a previous marriage. So I guess by marriage, he's my uncle. He had told us that this one property was, you know, historically good for elk, but it was also that uh, the property that had had the mountain lions move in on it. So we took his advice Tuesday morning, woke up and let me tell you, it's just it's so different from anything that I've ever done here in Missouri or in Texas or any other place that I've 
you know, had an opportunity to go hunt. Hiked all through those woods looking for sign. Um, it was knee deep snow. I think it was like 15 degrees that morning. And, you know, I mentioned the elevation. Well, Tuesday night, we, or Tuesday afternoon after that hunt, you know, we didn't see any sign. Um, we decided to run over to Iron Mountain and start glassing that. And luckily we found a herd um, that just as they were starting to crest the peak of the mountain and go back on the backside and go down to bed, um, we, you know, decided, okay, we're, we're going to give this a whirl. We're going to try and uh, try and make a move. So go back, grab a quick bite to, to eat for lunch, let our, uh, <laughs> let our gear fall out from the knee deep snow we were trekking through that morning, fill up on water, and uh, we decided to hit the mountain. So we parked um, in Iron Mountain. If you can imagine, the, the, if you're looking at it, the left side of the peak is the steepest part of the mountain and it slowly trickles down just a little bit maybe a few hundred yards has almost a peak that's identical to it and then after you crest that peak there's a real steep drop into a saddle um, that has a peak a third peak that's about two-thirds the height of um, of the two main peaks and that drops off down into a valley so we decided to set up on a mountain uh, that was just adjacent to that one and essentially glass and try and see what these herds were doing. There were elk tracks all over the mountain and the mountain that we were on called No Name Mountain. We decided to uh, just kind of glass from there. And it's probably, I don't know, maybe one o'clock at this point. And I look over at dad and I said to him, you know, dad, we're, we're here. We're working with a pretty tight schedule. Let's move up. Um, let's move up to this point where, if the elk are going to pop out, you know, they'll be within four or 500 yards, which was farther than we were comfortable shooting at that point. As we move up to uh, what we called the knob on Iron Mountain, uh, we still just moved the valley of um, between the knob and just below the saddle where we'd seen a bunch of trails of elk pouring out and where we'd seen that herd go to bed. Well, as we get set up and as we're moving in on them, we start seeing elk trickle out. And they're probably maybe seven, eight hundred yards away at this point, which is, is very far. But, you know, an elk that's so much bigger than a whitetail, you know, 700 yards, you're thinking, holy smokes, man, we're right here in the game. So we move, close the distance a little more on them, and we get set up uh, below this rock outcropping. And as we're getting set up, I'm ranging one of the lowest cows in the herd. And I'm thinking, boys, we're, I'm not even in Mexico for 24 hours. I'm about to fill a tag. Range 300, range another one, 310. And just as, you know, we're starting to get settled in and we're contemplating, okay, do we want to take this shot? And we're taking into account our dope chart, which for those that aren't familiar with the dope chart, it's essentially what your rifle is, what your... Uh, what the ammunition is that you're shooting and how far that ammunition, that round drops after you fire at certain distances. Um, mine specifically, I was zeroed at 200. At 300, I believe it dropped like five inches, 400, it dropped 10 inches, and then it started dropped significantly after that. So I'm ranging. These elk are at about 300 yards on Tuesday night. And a snowstorm starts moving. Very, very heavy snowstorm. 
um, to the point where even at 300 yards, it's greatly reducing visibility. Um, and these elk were skylined on an adjacent ridge. So we decided after that herd had dropped over the ridge, we were going to go ahead and back out for the night. Um, we just weren't comfortable shooting at that distance in a snowstorm at night on a mountain we weren't familiar with. Um, and, you know, headed back to camp. So get back to camp, fixing supper, and dad and I are just kind of recapping the day's activities and planning for the next day. And my dad, who's 52 years old, had said to me, and I never heard him say this before. He said, I don't know if I've ever been this tired in my entire life. I mean, he was absolutely <laughs> whooped. And, you know, Tuesday nights, that's the day we typically record. That's our first state elevation. Boys, I was whooped. I mean, we were in bed by like 730 that night. So Wednesday morning yeah. rolls around. Um, we go back to the property across from uh, where we were staying, which they call the Gallagher Ranch. Um, Gallagher Ranch still wasn't holding any elk sign, and and we were we were feeling the previous day's hike on the mountain. So we decided to go back to camp. We're like, all right, we're gonna go back out after uh, after that herd on Iron Mountain. So we go back, grab breakfast, basically the same thing as uh, as Tuesday. But on the drive out to Iron Mountain, Dad says to me, he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm feeling it. You know, he's 52 years old at, at you know, 7,400 feet of elevation increase of what we're used to. He said, what I'll do is I'll glass from the Jeep, which um, glass from the Jeep on the road, which is about a mile and a quarter, mile and a half from where I was planning on going up to, to get set up to see if those elk were going to do the same thing that they had done the night before. So we're like, okay, no big deal. We, you know, he was going to turn the lights on to the Jeep if he saw um, elk come out. And it was a beautiful day, high pressure, bluebird, light wind day. Um, it was actually pretty warm where I ended up getting set up. And I'd set up with that rock outcropping that we were on the night before. So I'm up there and I'm set up. I got my, you know, shout out to, to Vail Camo. I had my insulator system on. And I'll tell you what, boys, if you want to invest in some good camo and some good quality gear, that stuff kept us warm and dry the entire time. Um, it's a waterproof, windproof bib and jacket system that as long as you got a good set of socks and boots, I don't I don't think that there's, there's any there's anything that would prevent you from um, hunting in that, you know, conditions wise. So I'm yeah. set up on the uh, the rock outcropping. And you know, kind of just occasionally peeking up on the ridge where we had seen elk not only the day before, but also that morning. They were, of course, at the very tippy top of that mountain. I'm, I'm, if the peak was 9944, I bet they were every bit of 9800. Um, so I'm sitting there set up occasionally looking, you know, all around me trying to see if, and I'm hidden. Basically, I'm on the edge of a, a mini bluff, so to speak. Um, nothing that would come from over top of me could see me until it was right there until I stood up. So I had great cover, um, was facing the the Southwest. So at one point I was so tired. I was like, you know what? I may just lay here and take a nap. I was like, no, you can't fall asleep. If you take a nap, you know, you're going to miss dad's signal and you're going to have elk right on top of you and you're not even going to know it. So stayed awake and right at last light, just like Whitetail, um, a herd had moved out over what we call the slope 
um, or the shelf rather, on the very far northern side of that face, uh, just below the tree line. And I'm, I pulled out my Onyx maps and it dropped a pin from where I was to the pin dad had sent me where he'd seen the elk and they were like 850 yards away through a couple, you know, mountain valleys and ridges. I was like, there's no way I'm going to close the distance on them. And so at this point, it's Wednesday night. Um, you know, we'd been after what we thought was the same herd for two days and kind of starting to worry if we're going to be able to make this happen. We got essentially two days left, Thursday and Friday to hunt. And then Saturday we were heading back because I had to get back to work. So Thursday morning, we kind of game plan. We're like, you know what? Let's just go back to Iron Mountain. Still no sign on the Gallagher Ranch of any elk moving in the area. Um, my Uncle Stacy had even kind of buzzed through there on the snowmobile to see if there was any fresh sign. And he wasn't able to really find any uh, that at least showed that they were there for an extended period amount of time. So Thursday morning, we're, uh, that morning was the coldest morning out there. It was negative 21 or negative 25 when we woke up. Um, yep. yeah, just absolutely miserable conditions. So we decided to glass from the truck until uh legal light hit rather than, you know, go beat feet and up the mountain and pitch black dark and negative 25 conditions. And as we're watching this herd come out on the top of the mountain, same herd that, you know, was there the night before, um, we learned that elk, you know, they can move pretty quick, but if they don't need to move, they got food and shelter and water around. They're really not going to move. So as we're glassing this herd at the top, uh, my dad's on the phone with Uncle Stacy. And I, I it, it was almost like it was an epiphany, you know, a mirage. It, I didn't believe what I was seeing. And at the bottom of this mountain, there's a bunch of little gullies, little cuts that in these gullies, they have a bunch of uh, pine and aspen trees in the bottom of them. And as dad's on the phone, I tap him. And I said, look, right there, there's elk right here at the base of this mountain, just just at the head of this gully that we could easily sneak up. And I was like, oh, hey, Stacy, we got eyes on elk. We got to go. So we hung up. We got dressed real quick, grabbed the rifle and came up with a game plan where we're going to. Sun wasn't even above the mountains at this point. It was more than light to shoot. But, you know, the sun has to come above those mountains to be able to illuminate the valley. So we decided we were going to get into this gully do the best we could to slowly sneak and just stay together to try and look like one single, you know, moving unit. Um, the elk at this point, we're still about 800 yards away. So we get up into the head of the scully. We got good tree cover. And I asked dad at one point, I said, okay, do you want to move on the sun side of the scully where, you know, on the east side of this gully where, you know, we have the sun at our back, but in order for the elk to see us, they're having to look into the sun as well. So they're not really going to be able to depict what we are. May smooth, may, may blow them out just because they don't know. Or we can stay in the shadows on the west side of the gully and get up into position dead. So let's stay. So as we're moving in, we can slowly see these elk start to start to move up the mountain. As we get to the head of the gully, keep in mind it's negative 20-something at this point. And we get into position, and I pull my rangefinder out, and uh, my rangefinder is essentially frozen. Like, the battery was not working, period. And I even had, like, a you know good solid lithium battery in it. 
I'm like, well, crap. And so I'm trying to get that battery warmed up and dad's keeping an eye on them. And finally I had, you know, gotten the, uh, the battery warm enough to make one click, but my optic on the rangefinder was still so froze. You know how uh, your windshield gets frosted over. That's exactly what happened to, uh, that's exactly what's happened to my rangefinder. So I'm like looking at this point and I see the silhouette of an elk and I click, click once, click a third time and finally illuminates 380. It's like, okay, 380. At this point, it's Thursday morning. We got like less than 36 hours in the hunt. We need to get comfy and take a shot. So I lay down, prone position, get a beat on these elk, and I go to look through my scope, and my scope is froze up. So (laughs) at this point, we're panicking. We got elk within range, you know, aside from Tuesday night. The closest we've had them in, in perfect conditions. They don't really know we're there yet. So we're trying to get this scope cleaned off and our adrenaline's pumping and we're breathing heavy. And finally we get settled and dad and I, you know, start coordinating. Okay. Which one are you going to shoot at? Which one are you going to shoot at? We finally get those all picked out, you know, let out the, the classic full breath all the way down to the bottom and slowly start to squeeze off. And as we squeeze off, boom, of course the herd starts scattering. And the one I was aiming at, um, had almost immediately done like the you could tell she was hit and dad's shooting a 300 savage which at almost 400 yards it has 56 inches of drop holy cow round drops 56 inches at 400 yards so he's you know he's taking a shot or two at these elk and he's just seeing them impact you know feet in front of them and snow just go flying up and these elk don't really know what's going on. And I put the scope and, you know, I'm breathing heavy at this point and my scope's fogging back up and I'm trying to get it cleaned off and, you know, get a follow-up shot on this elk. And the rest of the herd has kind of moved off at this point. And the one that I had hit, she was just kind of standing there. And then she goes and beds down and I pull my binos out and I'm putting them on her and, you can just slowly see her head starting to starting to drop down and boom all of a sudden it just lays down on the side of that mountain and so in the midst of the chaos i think i think i'd fired three rounds one was low one was high and one had made impact and uh you know i'm call me a bad shot call me whatever you want but in the moment at elevation on an animal i've never I've been wanting to help hunt these animals for 12 years. And, you know, I had one round left at this point. So dad and I are, are celebrating and we're watching this herd that goes over the, the ridge and they're still on the property. And, you know, they're 350 something yards at this point. And so dad's like, let's go up there and get the next one. And so we slowly start moving in and dad's, you know, trying to glass and find out where they were and they'd eventually kind of moved off and across the property line and we just kind of wrote that off for the day so then the celebration started you know we got uh got the first elk on thursday and did the old grip and grin on the side of the mountain beautiful pictures beautiful scenery um frigid cold morning but i didn't even care at that point got it back and you know skinned out and started to process it and all that good stuff and celebrated you know some more that night and just because it was such an incredible hunt um 
Friday morning or, you know, Thursday night into Friday morning, dad and I are starting a game plan for, okay, dad, you're, you're up to bat. And he ended up taking my 308 out just because with the amount of drop that his 300 Savage had, um, we move into uh, almost the same part of Iron Mountain that I had hunted mine or had, had harvested mine. Get set up. We're glassing from the trucks another frigid cold morning on Friday. And on the neighboring property, but a couple feeder mountains uh, to, to the mountain that we were hunting, we see the biggest herd of elk that we had seen thus far. I bet there were probably... 200 head um in this one herd you know he had a few spike bulls he had some shed bulls tons of cows and calves so i told dad i said dad we need to basically do the same thing we did yesterday move up this gully get into position and wait them out and we moved a little higher up through that gully that we had when i'd taken my shot and as we're getting in there was just a massive herd. I'd never seen so many animals in a herd like that before and just moving naturally across the landscape. There were a bunch way up high on the mountain, probably 94 to 9,500 feet, almost near the top. And they just trickled all the way down to our same elevation. We have a pretty steep ridge and the property line right beside us. And as we're moving in, Michael Stacy down the valley, we can see his, his pickup truck. So dad shoots him a text, you know, are there any to our north, which would have been just on our same elevation line, but across the property line. And as we're watching this herd, they're all jumping the fence and coming onto the property that we can hunt. And I bet there were probably 70 in this initial herd. I mean, just, they just kept coming over and over and over. So dad drops his pack. We decided to slip back down to the gully and in between us and where the elk were at this point, they were in a, uh, a scrub oak patch is what we were calling them. They're essentially a little teeny tiny hedge bush that produce a very small acorn in, uh, in the fall. But they'll also eat the buds and some of the leaves, I guess, you know, during this time where food is not readily available. So in between the scrub oak patch where the elk are, and where we are, we dropped down the gully, and there was just a teeny tiny change in uh, almost like a little shelf where we could drop down the gully, move up a little bit, and then we had to end up belly crawling about uh, about 30 yards to the crest of this peak. And I had not made that same mistake that I made the day before with letting my rangefinder get in that super cold condition. So I have a FHF gear uh, hand warmer that I'd taken two hand warmers and put inside of it and then take taking my rangefinder and put it in there so it would stay warm enough to where when I pulled out and needed to use it, it would work properly. So get uh, get into position and dad and I, you know, there's so many elk in this one general area that I'm ranging, um, ranging the southern part of the herd range or, you know, the, the lowest part of the herd and ranging the ones that are highest up and I'm giving them kind of in between. He said, just give me the one that's in the lead part of the herd that is the lowest. Click on it, 330, 330 yards on the dot. So I'm watching through the binos, and even at 300 yards, it was still close, but enough to where I could see maybe half a dozen to a dozen elk at any given time. He said, all right, ready? And 
you know, I can tell he's getting ready to shoot at this point. He's trying to get his adrenaline and his heart rate under control, you know, get his breathing rate under control and all that. I hear him click the safety off and go ahead and put my fingers in my ears to, you know, prepare for the gunshot. And no sooner than I got my fingers in my ears, boom. And it's, I'm not even joking, boys. He hit that elk right in the base where the neck meets the skull and dropped her. I mean, just absolutely dropped her at 3.30. And then, of course, you know, the herd goes scattering. And I'm like, Dad, you got her? You know, we're high-fiving and hugging and all that stuff. And it's just when you go out of state to hunt and you're, you know, working your butt off and things like that and everything that we had done, to have it done on the last day, it's, you know, it's difficult because you're spending time away from your family and, you know, especially me with young kids, um, I'm, I'm, I'm missing them. You know what I mean? Missing out on things, even though it's just a five-day trip. But to get that full experience on Monday class and Tuesday and Wednesday, you know, hunting hard, but getting skunked. Thursday got mine. Friday, dad got his. And it just, it was the perfect, you know, bow to put on the end of the trip. Climb up to uh, climb up to dad's is the last part, and then I'm sure you guys probably got some questions. But climb up to where dad's elk is, and it was the same elevation right at 9,000 feet. And I'll be damned if the elk, the two elk that we shot, weren't 80 yards apart. You know, mine on Thursday and dad's on Friday. 80 yards, that's all it was. But I do have. One question for you right away. Uh, you talking about being worn out in the elevation, and uh, you're you're still uh, National Guard uh, with with the Army, I believe. But uh, how quick are you hitting leg day? Uh, well, I'll correct you because you know in the Army, if there's any other military guys, I'm in the reserve, so I'm not I'm not in the guard. But that's okay. We'll uh, we'll let it slide. Um, aside from climbing the stairs to get into the tower cab at the tower, I have done nothing but walk and climb those stairs for my legs, and that's it. <laughs> they have earned a uh, a well deserved break for sure. There you go. Well, it sounds amazing. Now you you talk about the elk, and you you said uh, at the beginning that. Uh, the elk will absolutely leave a property if there's any sign of a mountain lion. So what, what other, uh, creatures did you see out there other than the elk? Yeah. Uh, good question. So we basically, as soon as we crossed over the panhandle Oklahoma and got into the very Northeastern part of New Mexico, um, saw a ton of antelope. Like to the point where when we stopped at the fishing game office in Raton, New Mexico, I'd even asked the lady who was, you know, uh, helping us purchase our permits. I said, you know, it was maybe an odd question, but is antelope season open right now? It's like, no, no, it, you know, it's closed. It closes in like November or December or something like that. But a ton of antelope um, who actually passed by Ted Turner's ranch and he had a couple hundred head of buffalo out there. Um, so I'll quite a few mule deer saw the elk of course saw some bighorn sheep uh in between cuesta new mexico and red river 
um, kind of down in, in a beautiful part of the Red Rocks and the mountains, the kind of foothills of those mountains areas. Uh, coyotes and some rabbits. That's about it. So no mountain lions. Well, you forgot to talk about the prairie dogs in Kansas. I'm sure you saw plenty of them. No, they were they were all, you know, I guess hibernating. I don't know. I don't know what a prairie does a prairie dog does this time of year, but no, we didn't see any of them. No. Uh what what was the first cut of meat y'all y'all ate? I'm sure you ate elk uh Thursday night, Friday night. Uh what what's that first cut y'all get off them? So it's funny you mention that because we actually, as we're processing mine, they're they're massive. The elk are just enormous, and as we're processing it, uh, the way they do it out there is a little different than we do our whitetail here. So you get them on a uh, about a, I don't know horsepower and a half electric winch, um, get it winched up and you know aging. And then what my Uncle Stacy does is you'll go ahead and take your tenderloins out, you know, which for those that don't know, that's the cut of meat um, on the inside of the body cavity, but below the loin. So you're, you hear the back strap. Uh, the tenderloin essentially attaches midway from the spine back towards the hips on the underside of the body cavity, on the underside of the spine. So you take those out. You... Then he cuts right smack dab down the middle of the spine um, to where essentially you have two perfect equal halves of the elk. And then what he does is he cuts at the very last cuts between the rib um, crossways to where then you have rib cage, shoulder, rib cage, shoulder, you know, rear ham, rear ham. Um, but as we were processing mine, we noticed what looked like a second set of tenderloins up between the shoulder blades at the base of the neck. So dad and I were like, Hey, those are perfect. Like eating size for lunch. We were starved at this point on Thursday. So we decided to go take those, cook those up. Um, it is not tenderloin. It's um, what we're assuming is it's a part of the neck meat. Um, just kind of on the underside. It was very great flavor, but it was very chewy, like neck meat. Um, not yeah. tender like your, you know, your loins or your tender loins are going to be. So that was the first cut that we had um, off that elk. But uh, I cooked some up Sunday for my girls and my father-in-law on Sunday. And I actually just cooked up two tomahawk steaks off of uh, off of dad's tonight for supper. Hard to beat that. Yeah, solids look good, really. They were, they were very good. Uh, one interesting thing. So as we're field dressing, right, all of a sudden, there was a, I even mentioned it to dad, it was like a biblical swarm of ravens. Like, you, you see the crows here in the Midwest, and they're, I don't know, maybe about the size of a house cat, a little, you know, a little bit smaller. Um, but the ravens out there are about four times the size of crows here in the Midwest. And I guess it's they either smell it or they hear the gunshots and they come. I mean, it just in waves of, I don't know, maybe a dozen ravens at a time to the point where there's probably close to 100 in and around your kill site. And they're just like 
like hyenas or coyotes. They're just waiting until you're done. And the second you start dragging that field dressed elk down the mountain and you just have your, you know, your, your field dressing gut pile there, it is gone within two to three hours of the kill. Wow. It's incredible. It's gone. Like it, we got to the base of the mountain and there was just a solid black spot. I'll send you guys a picture of, of the Ravens just absolutely devouring that, uh, that gut pile. Well, like the scavengers, I guess that makes sense, right? I guess. But it just shows nothing goes to waste in, in Mother Nature. Yeah. Out there away from it all for sure. Nature has a way of cleaning itself up. Yes. I mean, it was an incredible hunt. It really was. Where's good time, you know. You know, getting to uh, just bond, you know, with my dad. I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to not only have my father, um, but live in the same town as him you know i live like five miles away from him so you know i see him on a weekly basis most weeks um but just to to be able to accomplish a hunt that we'd both been wanting to do so long and my dad grew up in new mexico and that was his first elk ever that's real so for us to both get our first elk on the same trip was pretty awesome no that's really cool I think that's kind of why a lot of us do this is the bonding with family and friends and that kind of thing. I mean, obviously getting to meet a great end goal and we all love doing it, but experience with your dad. It was, it was a good time for sure. But do you have anything else you, you'd like to add to it or, uh, any, Anything in the days leading up to Thursday that you regretted and thought, you know, should have, should we have done it this way or should I have, did I make the wrong move or, uh, I've never hunted big spaces like that. Everything I've done has been tight in the woods. So, uh, I guess I would just, it'd be a completely different mental capacity for me, uh, hunting hunting something where you're looking at them that, that far away from you. It is. Uh, it's, it's completely different. Um, not only from the, the elevation aspect, which we've mentioned multiple times, but the vast landscape. I mean, you're talking, you know, you, you may go talk to a private landowner somewhere here in Missouri and ask to uh, either rifle or archery hunt their property. And you may be dealing with, I'd say probably 150, 200 yards is a good sized property in and around here. Out in uh, out in the West, you know, not just specifically New Mexico, but Western Texas and Arizona and Nevada, they don't classify their properties by the acres. They classify them by the square miles, which they call sections. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these are, you know, eight sections or six sections or whatever the case may be. All that's leading up to me saying that if you've ever wanted to go out and and pursue something, mule deer, um, elk, uh, any kind of predator, anything like that. If you've ever been wanting to go out and just get out of your comfort zone and go hunt, all it takes is a little bit of planning, a little bit of logistics, and just to go do it. Um, and it's a, I have zero regrets. Zero regrets on going on the trip. Zero regrets on you know, stepping out of that comfort zone. We were fortunate enough to essentially have a guide in my uncle, but there's plenty of opportunities to go and, and do it yourself on public land. Not just for, I mean, yeah, I would have loved to take a bull elk, but 
the experience to take a cow first with a rifle was phenomenal. I can only imagine taking a bull elk with, you know, with a bow at, yeah. <laughs> at you know, 40 yards or something insane like that. It's, it's worth it. So if you've ever wanted to go out West and go hunt and, and get that experience, just do it, man. And I'm, I, if anybody has questions and on how to do it, I'm not an expert by any means, but I will facilitate those questions and try and help you best I can. It's also a good time to remind everybody that the state of Missouri has uh, an elk herd in Southern Missouri. I do. And there is a lottery draw for their tag system, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I believe 20, what was the case? 2018, 2019 was the first season. I thought it was 2020, 2021, but um, okay. it doesn't really matter. But yeah, uh, tags come up. They, they're doing a little by little, but it's it's getting successful. It's really gaining a lot of uh, people interested in, for sure. Yeah, same with the same with the black bear too. Um, yeah, I know they open their bear yeah. season here in Missouri as well, and I think that's been going on for about the same time. I had a, a good friend of mine uh, that had applied and was successful and got his section down in southwestern Missouri, south maybe south central Missouri. I'm not exactly sure where, but. Uh, yeah, he said it was it was a good hunt. Well, looking forward to the future to where uh, Missourians don't have to go on those trips. Not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it'd be great to see the state have that across the board for everybody that wants to do it. Definitely. Yeah, uh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the day that we get to a point where I go and purchase my whitetail tags and also have an elk tag. Yeah. I I am very much looking forward to that day. I may you be sixty. That's... I don't know, but <laughs> who knows? yeah, it may not be soon. But you got to think Missouri is a perfect state for that. Uh, just think of how different this state is from one corner to another. You know, yeah. you go up where I hunt at, and it's it's a lot more like uh, Wisconsin is. You know, down there in where the Arkansas border, which you know we're having bear hunting down there. Compared to you know out uh, east in St. Louis or down to the Boot Hill, it's this state really does get the best of the entire country for hunting, and um, we'll take 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 care of it, do some conservation, and we're going to get the elk hunting numbers up. We're going to get bear hunting numbers up. This state can be a true paradise, honestly, when it comes to that. It really can. That's one thing Dad and I talked about is exactly what you just mentioned. You know, you go from the Missouri Iowa border, and it's you know big agriculture mostly flat you know you're talking a little bit of a little bit of timber some rolling hills Mm -hmm. and then you get down here to jeff city columbia you know middle missouri you're getting a little bit of not only bluff country in and around the rivers but you know also your river bottoms then you get into you know just east of columbia you have big huge sections of mark twain national forest and you get down to close to skeeter's neck of the woods and it's that's pretty much all it is is big chunks of you know the the foothills of the ozark mountains and the ozark plateau and it's a it's a beautiful state for sure i like i like to call the southern god's country Uh, (laughs) a little little biased to you (laughs) it is it is beautiful down there for sure but it really is down there speaking of conservation uh Earlier today, uh, Cole, you and I 
were able to bring on state biologist. Uh, I don't, I can't, I'm not even going to attempt his last name again. <laughs> Mr. Kevin. <laughs> Mr. Kevin. And he's, he's going to go over some of the numbers and trends at the state. And it's, it's a very good interview. Uh, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this. Yeah. I think he's, he's not only, uh, not only great at what he does, but he's, you know, specifically focuses in private, private property deer biology. And I do, I agree with you. I think our listeners are not only going to get a lot from this interview, um, but also make a connection and learn how to get in contact with him if they've ever wondered, hey, how do I improve my property or how can I get someone out to look at my property and see how I can improve my deer herd? And now we'd like to welcome Mr. Kevin. I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name. I'll let you do that because I will butcher that. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Wiskirkin. Yeah, Wiskirkin. Glad to be here. Wiskirkin. Okay, Mr. Kevin, uh, can you kind of tell everybody who you are and why we brought you to the show? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm one of uh, a few deer biologists that work for the state of Missouri Conservation Department. And so part of my uh, role deals with statewide deer season regulations and chronic wasting disease management. And so you know, I'm here today to, to talk about how the past deer season looked and, and what our statewide deer population is doing and touch on chronic wasting disease and, and some other things. Well, Mr. Kevin, I'll, I'm sure you haven't listened to our show, but if you would go back to, uh, I don't remember when it was, but uh, we were going over some numbers that were released early from the state. Uh, it may have been Youth Firearm Weekend, but my buddy Cole here, uh, when he took a shot at how many deer were harvested, <laughs> he said like 8,200. It was like 89,000 at the time, so... Uh, the state of Missouri is a very rich state for deer hunting, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're right up there with with a lot of the top harvesting, you know, states in the in the nation. I, th I think a lot of people don't realize just how much area we've got here and and just what good deer numbers. So yeah, we we have a good thriving deer population and harvest. Typically, um, the last five years or so, we've been approaching harvest of around 300,000 uh, every year, which is a pretty, pretty staggering number. This year, we were just shy of that at 299,721, I think was the preliminary count. And we'll get our final numbers here in a, a few days once the dust settles just a little bit more. So yeah, a lot of deer harvested every year in the state. 299,000. That is just hard to get my mind wrapped around, but it, it makes like no more deer than what I see. I think, oh no, we're, we're going to be out of deer, but obviously that's not the case, right? No, no, it's not. So that's just a, just a percentage, um, probably less than 20% of the, of the entire herd is, is harvested. So we, we currently estimate we've got, you know, around 1.6 million deer in the state, uh, something like that and, and a slightly increasing trend. So we're harvesting, um, you know, few enough that the population is still increasing in most parts of the state um, at a at a slow but steady pace. So, uh, still plenty of deer out there for the next se season. 
Uh, Cole, do you, do you have anything you want to say to those numbers? Because I, I, I know it seems astonishing to me, and I can only imagine where your your mind is right now. It, yeah, it is. Um, I've been, you know, I've been deer hunting majority of my life. I feel like most, you know, Missourians that are in and involved in the outdoors. Um, and, you know, to hear, I always would kind of check the final harvest numbers um, that MDC puts out. And I guess it never really kind of registered. Um, Kevin, you said one estimated, of course, 1.6 million deer within the state. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, so I guess I want to go back to, you know, previous years. Where does that, where does that sit? Um, say the past five to 10 years, are we seeing a, uh, a harvest trend upward? Is it fairly stable? Um, did we have, you know, a, a down year that, you know, maybe EHD or CWD kind of, um, you know, swept through an area. Um, what, yeah. what are, what's that trend looking like? Yes. Yeah, so I'll go, I'll go back slightly further to about 15 years ago, the, the mid two thousands, we were probably sitting at, uh, you know, our, the, the historically highest uh, deer population in the state that we had had up to that point. Um, just honestly too many deer in, in certain parts of the state just based on problems we were starting to have, you know, interfering with uh, crops farmers were trying to grow and, and people hitting them on roads and things. We were starting to um, get that get that number back under control um, with some pretty li liberal uh, deer season regulations, particularly in, in northern Missouri. Um, but then in 2012, uh, late summer, we had an outbreak of a disease called hemorrhagic disease or blue tongue. Um, yeah. It's a virus that that causes pretty widespread mortality in white-tailed deer, and, and that hit really um, the northern two-thirds of the state pretty hard and really knocked back deer numbers. Um, and so going into 2013, the population was quite a bit lower, and, and we saw that reflected in the harvest um, just way down from it had been in 2012. And so really since 2013, we kind of dialed back um, our regulations, made them a bit more conservative to try and help that population re rebound. And we have seen a, a steadily increasing trend in harvest and our population estimates uh, since 2013, um, a pretty steady and stable increase. And so today we're in most parts of the state pretty well back to where we were um, pre-2012, that really bad hemorrhagic disease outbreak year. Um, there are still certain parts of the state where things haven't fully recovered, and there's some other factors that might be playing into that, some changes in, in the habitat that's available to deer today compared to 10 years ago. Uh, but by and large, we're back to where we were. So, you know, today sitting, sitting close to, you know, record deer population once again. So to kind of go off of that, um, I, I kind of want to continue that trend. So, you know, maybe 10 ish, 10, 15 years ago, we saw, um, you know, uh, blue tongue kind of sweep through the northern two thirds of the state, like you mentioned, populations are coming back up. So now as a biologist, um, my father's a fisheries biologist. So him and I just got back from a, uh, a trip to New Mexico. Um, so we had a lot of windshield time to talk about pretty much everything in and of the outdoors. Um, I know when you see kind of the ebbs and flows of population, um, it, it seems then when 
uh, population increases, obviously there's more deer. Um, there's, you know, things that lie in and of deer, I'm assuming at least, um, that didn't could cause a potential outbreak. Is that something you guys are kind of monitoring with, you know, population on the, on the rise? Um, is there, is there something that you guys are kind of keeping an eye on, uh, aside from, you know, the obvious CWD and, and EHD, um, to, you know, maybe kind of curb, a, a a potential future outbreak within the next few years? Yeah. So, so Missouri is, is pretty fortunate. We've got a, a pretty vocal community of hunters and, and just public citizens that um, are uh, pretty willing to contact us as they notice things, uh, see a sick deer. We get reports uh, of all kinds of things. And so that, that gives us the ability to keep a pretty close tabs on what's going on with deer populations and in different parts of the state, particularly as it relates to disease issues and that sort of thing. So we do rely pretty heavily on that kind of feedback and that um, interaction with the public to, to let us know when, when things are going awry. That was really, really how we got those early uh, clues that we were entering a, a severe hemorrhagic disease outbreak back in 2012 was from those reports. And then we started following up on some of those and actually sampling the animals and getting confirmation that it was the hemorrhagic disease virus. So a lot of that, um, you know, starts with that communication we get from the public. So that's really kind of our, our um, pathway to a lot of that monitoring. Um, but besides that, we've got a whole uh, wildlife health program within the agency. Um, they oversee a lot of the chronic wasting disease monitoring and surveillance and, and management that we're doing in the state right now. Um, you know, another hot hot topic right now is avian influenza that's spread through the through this part of the nation. And so they've done a lot of monitoring and, and sampling and things like that for for that disease. So they obviously cover a lot more than just deer um but they, there's a whole team of folks there that are kind of constantly monitoring the the disease issues that we might come across in the state but speaking of diseases i know uh back on opening weekend of firearms uh i believe it was 34 or 35 counties uh you had mandatory testing for cwd can you kind of go over those numbers because that's that seems like a a real focus of the state this past year is the CWD and, and what did y'all kind of learn and, and what are we looking at for the future of the state with it? Yeah. So, you know, CWD is chronic wasting disease. It's been, um, you know, in the, in the state for um, around a decade. So 2012 was the first year we found the disease in the wild uh, free ranging herd in the state. And, um, with that first detection, started to establish a CWD management zone. And as we found the disease in new, new parts of the state, um, that zone has expanded. So you're right, this past year, I think it was a 38-county management zone. Um, and within a subset of that, 34 of the counties, we had a mandatory re uh, requirement the hunters present their deer uh, if they harvested it on that first weekend of the November portion of deer season for CWD sampling. So we've been doing that since 2016. So it's not necessarily a new thing, but it is um, an important part of our disease surveillance. Um, and, and that's, 
you know, it's a huge undertaking and a huge ask of hunters, certainly, but it gives us a great way to monitor where the disease is located and how how prevalent or how common it is within parts of the state where we found it, but need to get a better understanding of, okay, just how many deer are sick with this disease. So um, this year, you know, that gave, that effort gave us about 20,000 samples. So we sampled about 20,000 deer for the disease um, and, uh, you know, found a few sick ones in there. And so that gave us a better understanding of where exactly the disease currently is. And then we can work with the idea from that is then we can work with landowners in those areas where we know we have the disease to try and do some more intensive management to keep it, um, you know, to, to keep it somewhat contained if we can, but to limit um, how many additional deer uh, might get sick with it. So certainly an important part of that management. Yes, sir. Um, do you, do you foresee the, the trend of harvest numbers increasing or the deer population slowly increasing as well. Like, uh, I know COVID changed the way we do life. Uh, I think it got a lot more people outdoors, uh, because they were tired of being cooped up in their house. But, uh, what, what do you see, uh, projection wise, let's say the next five years for the state, what, what can we expect? Uh, any, any big changes in, in harvest or hunters? Yeah, from the hunter side of things, um, you're right. I think a lot of states did see kind of a bump there following the COVID lockdowns, uh, just outdoors men and women ready to get get back out in the field and great way to, um, you know, to do an activity where you're not cooped up inside. So uh, I think we we did, we were part of that and saw a, a bump in permit sales there for a while, but I think things kind of kind of tapered back off to the trend they had been on, which was unfortunately a declining uh, trend in hunter participation. Um, so again, going back to uh, around 2012, again, um, was kind of our peak in hunter numbers. Um, and it's been kind of steadily decreasing since then, uh, particularly those hunting with a firearm, which is the bulk of our deer hunters in the state or firearm deer hunters. We've seen a little bit actually of an increasing trend in, in archery um, deer hunters, I think, because of uh, some of the additional opportunities have, have been created for archers um, in Missouri, yes, recently, um, one of which was is allowing crossbows. Uh, so that helps that helps get hunters into archery hunting a little earlier and, and help, you know, a little younger age and helps That's some of those older hunters stay with it for longer. So a um, little bit of different trend in the archery realm, but it, overall, seeing a, a pretty steady market decline in hunter participation um, over time. And that's certainly a trend beyond just here in Missouri or even the Midwest. Uh, it's really nation nationwide. So something that we'll have to, um, you know, do what we can to, to find creative ways to change that trend if we can, always trying new tactics for hunter recruitment and and things of that nature, but something we'll have to continue to grapple with. Um, in terms of harvest, what I project going forward, um, because we are at a point where deer populations have rebuilt and, and are at a, a pretty high point, we're starting to liberalize several parts of our deer season. And, and some of those, many of those changes will occur even as soon as the 2023 
deer season. Um, and so we've in many counties increased the number of antlerless permits that hunters can fill with a firearm. Um, previous to this coming season, the most you could buy over the counter if you weren't a landowner uh, was two in, in any particular county. And that number is going to go up to four in, in a large number of counties. So folks being able to kill more antlerless deer with a firearm. We've also added several portions to the deer season um, to, again, help with um, kind of curbing population growth in certain parts of the state. One of one addition is an early um, antlerless only firearm deer season. So we've previously had an antlerless firearm deer season um, kind of after after the November gun season and after the second youth season. But now we're adding a second one in kind of the second weekend of October, a three-day season there where folks can get out early and, and hopefully harvest some does and, um, you know, get populations knocked back a little bit if they need to. Um, we've also, within our chronic wasting disease management zone, to also help uh, kind of stabilize populations, we've added a CWD uh, portion to the deer season where essentially any hunter can continue to fill any unfilled permits for about five additional days. So continue on through Thanksgiving and that, that following weekend uh, to hunt with a gun if they so choose. So uh, several changes that we'll see here in the next, you know, those all that I mentioned will be this next deer season and, and we'll see what effect those have. Um, again, we're hoping to see far uh, to see harvest numbers, go up because of that and and bring the population stable or or decrease it even in some areas um and if not we may have additional changes down the road well that's that's a lot to i know y'all are always thinking several steps ahead to where us as hunters are usually thinking you know here and now and when the season closes we're we're already planning out next season but y'all are a year or two ahead of that usually. Uh, Cole, yeah, we certainly, you, uh, oh, go yeah. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say we we certainly try to do our best with that regard. I think from the outside looking in, some uh, a lot of times it seems like you know the department is is slow to react or, or kind of reactive, and part of that is you know just due to the the regulations process that we have to go through. You know, we can't just flip a switch and and make changes to regulations it's all you know backed by um approved laws and things that so that they can be enforceable and there's a process there so there's a bit of a lag time once we you know see that a change needs to be made a little bit of a process there but we do our do our best to try to stay ahead of things best we can yeah that was going to be one of my that's going to be one of my questions kind of following up um me personally i ever since I've gotten to archery hunting about five, six years ago now, um, it's pretty much all I do. I mean, I love the challenge. I love the um, intimacy, I guess, of archery hunting. You know what I mean? You're taking your your range from, depending on where you're hunting, 150, 200 yards with a rifle to basically right in your lap with archery. Um, now, the changes in the antlerless portion from post rifle season you know that post uh rut you know first initial rut time frame um to now before is that something that is kind of correlated with increase in population um is that something that hey you know maybe we're not 
you know, come, come the firearm season, of course, everyone's trying to, to harvest a buck. Um, but also, you know, to, to curb these numbers, is that something that you guys implemented uh, in order to, you know, keep that, uh, keep that population stable, um, you know, for the most part, from a healthy aspect, at least, is that something that you guys looked at? Yeah, yeah. So that's the idea is by providing this additional opportunity to, to harvest specifically antlerless deer with a firearm. We hope, you know, that'll encourage hunters to take advantage of that new opportunity and, um, like you said, stabilize or even reduce deer numbers in, in certain parts of the state. And, and it is an additional season. So we haven't replaced the antlerless portion that previously existed after kind of post rut. Um, so anywhere where that season was currently in place, we've added the additional early antlerless portion of firearm deer season. And we took quite a bit of, you know, quite a bit of care thinking about where to place that season. We wanted it, you know, late enough in the year that we've, we're past most of those hot nights where folks, you know, just don't want to sit out there and sweat while they're hunting. And, and if you get a deer, it's cool enough. You, you feel like you can deal with it right and not worry about the, the meat trying to spoil or something. Um, but then early enough, too, that we're not getting into, you know, the where the rut's really starting to pick up and a real prime time for, for archery hunting. Uh, so we wanted to kind of stay out of that area, too, um, as well as for folks that are mindful of putting pressure on, on bucks and things like that as we're getting toward the rut. So we, we feel like we kind of found that sweet spot for folks that want to fill the freezer early um, to get out there and, and do it efficiently. Um, but, you know, prior to getting serious about buck hunting or something like that. Now from a, from aspect of um, not only harvest, but permit sales, you know, historically Missouri has been a, um, non-resident, you know, over the counter, go to your local Walmart or, you know, fish and fish and tackle store, anywhere that sells a, uh, a permit and license and tags. Um, has there been any discussion? I don't know if you can just dis disclose this yet or not, but, um, a lot of our neighboring States are non-resident draw systems. Um, is that something that the department has, you know, either looked at or considered for not just a, um, hunter participation standpoint but a a revenue standpoint um because i'd imagine you know if you have you know hundred thousand hunters that are applying from out of state and you know you got to select 30 percent of those or what what have you um clearly that would you know increase the the amount of revenue um but i, I would imagine also that you know people from kansas iowa illinois kentucky any of the neighboring states can you know come across non-resident um, and purchase a permit, then obviously it's, it's doing, it's doing well. Is that something you guys have considered? Yeah. Um, I, I know it's been considered. Um, I'm, I'm not directly involved with kind of the, the permitting uh, structure and fee structure and things like that, but I do kind of hear about those discussions when they occur. And I know just a few years ago, we went through a permit fee restructuring, um, you know, non-resident permit fees were, increased not by a lot but they were increased and um and then non-resident landowners were were given a, a bit of a permit price break uh, recognizing that you know those non-residents that own property in missouri you know would would like that a uh, bit of a break on the permit fees to hunt here so um so yes i know it's been considered i don't know um you know i, I 
from what I understand, going to a draw system or something like that is not currently like in the plans. But um, like with most things, I don't think anything is off the table in perpetuity. Um, so it's something that will continue to be revisited. I do know, um, you know, we hear, we hear frequently from residents that would um, like to, to see going to something like that where uh, it's not quite as easy for non-residents to hunt in Missouri and, and not for um, as little as we do charge. But I think we've always taken the stance of, you know, just just uh, trying to create opportunity for residents and non-residents alike um, and, and try to allow folks to uh, establish those traditions of, of going to your your hunting spot that you've been going to for the last 20 years. You know, we all hold, hold those places pretty near and dear to our heart. And there's a lot of non-residents too that have established those traditions so uh, just a lot of things to take into consideration whenever you're talking about big you know large scale um, changes like that so well mr kevin uh we could sit here i know cole and i could sit here and talk deer hunting with you all day and in numbers and trends but i know uh we don't want to keep too much of your time from you uh if you wanted to give a uh, a little plug to the program you're with the state and uh, how anybody could reach out to you if they're interested. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. We were talking before the show about my title. It's the private lands deer biologist. And so I do get a opportunity to work with landowners to help manage their deer uh, on their property a bit more closely than, than some others, um, particularly through a program called DMAP, which stands for the Deer Management Assistance Program. Uh, it's a pretty new program in the state. Uh, just went through our fourth year. And the idea behind it is to uh, provide additional uh, doe harvest opportunities for landowners that are trying to do things like control damage to agriculture, you know, crops they're trying to grow, or even recreational landowners that are just trying to manage for a better deer herd. Maybe they want to balance the buck to doe ratio or, or bring density into balance with the habitat. So uh, really it's it's a, there for any landowner, regardless of their deer management goals. Um, there are some requirements you have to meet to be eligible for the program, but all the details for that um, are on online. If you go to the Department of Conservation webpage and just search for DMAP, uh, it'll take you there and, and lay all of that out. Um, the enrollment for that program starts in in middle of this May. Uh, so if you're interested, you can start to reach out at that point. Um, and it goes through about the middle of September. So pretty long period. If you're interested, just reach out to me and, and my email address is there. If you go to search for that program, you'll you'll find it there as well. So happy to chat with anybody who might be interested in getting enrolled in that program. Uh, it, it's something that is refreshing to see where the state gets involved with landowners on, on helping do the right thing with the deer hunting, uh, you know, to where y'all have the scientific research behind it and the, the right buck to doe ratio and, and harvest and all that. So, uh, it's very encouraging, uh, to see it, you know, you're saying it's your fourth year of, of doing it in the state and, uh, hopefully it's something that, the state never ends because it's something that always needs needs to be monitored absolutely couldn't agree with you more well 
I greatly appreciate you coming on. Uh, I know I said I'd probably ask you a little bit of turkey question, but uh, we're getting close to 30 minutes here. And uh, so maybe we, we can bring you back or uh, if you say there's turkey biologist, we might have to find one of them. So, but you're always welcome to, to reach out to us. If you have something you want to get out there to Missouri residents on hunting, uh, you're more than welcome to come back on anytime. I greatly appreciate that. I'd love that. Well, uh, Case is, was not involved with this because he, he's at work. He's the other third of the show. But for Case, uh, Cole, uh, you have anything else you want to say to him? No, like you said, I could I could sit here and pick his brain. I might have to, <laughs> have to pay him a visit here in, his, in the central office and pick his brain for a little while. But, uh, no, due to the time constraints, I, I just really appreciate you coming on. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get you on uh, – if not later this spring, uh, maybe as we're kind of leading into uh, into this next deer season. Yeah, that sounds great. I love it. All right, Mr. Ted, well, I'm going to sign you off with this. M-I-Z. Z-O-U. That's All right. right. Thank you, sir.